Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be back with you, and these uh, days have flown by. Uh, all days seem to fly by in retrospect, but especially when you're doing something this worthy uh, with people this kind, and uh, it is, it's been great to be here. I, uh, it was worth getting up this morning just to hear that introduction, uh, which, 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 you know, it, it is, an, is more humbling than you might think in all seriousness. I mean, after all, listen to Paul's self-description, short, bow-legged, bald, and completely unimpressive. Uh, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing because we need to show up unimpressive. That should be our aim. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you the truth, I am not worthy to be compared to the Apostle Paul, but I, 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 would, I would aspire to be because I really don't think it's very healthy for people to, to wear these WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? That, that, that's based upon actually a, a kind of a good natural Christian impulse. It, it just doesn't work. The, the reason it doesn't work is because we're not Jesus. And, and so when, when Jesus was confronted with a man who was blind from birth, he could heal him and did heal him to the glory of God and told him this was the reason you were born so that on this day the glory of God might be, delayed, might be displayed in you. We, we certainly need to emulate Jesus in every way we can, but I, I'm really more assured by the New Testament where Paul says to Timothy, imitate me. I, I want to wear a WWPD bracelet. What would Paul do? And, and it is because it, that, that we need the model of a faithful Christian man to know what one's supposed to look like who's seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is, this is what it looks like. I, I ought to be able, I'm not an apostle, but I ought to be able to aspire to look like the Apostle Paul in terms of my ministry. And so uh, this, is, this is kind of a, a, a thing people know about me. I, I, I talk about imitating Paul, imitating Paul, and, and, uh, and I, I, I throw this at people, like, a worship leader. You know, would Paul have liked that music? This is a very convenient thing for pastors to have as a question. Uh, you know, would, would Paul have done that? Would, would Paul sitting on the platform, what would he do? It, it, it's always a challenge to me when I hear horrible things said from the pulpit. You've had this happen. And, and it's often, it often comes from well-meaning people who just are given a testimony or whatever, and they say, and I'm trying to figure out what would Paul do with this? Well, Paul would be kind, but Paul would clear it up. Right? Have you ever noticed that Paul never leaves a mess on the ground? Look at the book of Acts. He cleans up every mess. That's one of the reasons why he had to get out of a lot of towns. Uh, that's what happens when you clean up a mess. You end up having to leave. I appreciated very much Justin pointing to the, uh, uh, to the back cover of the book. I have to tell you that that formula for preaching, which basically comes down to read the text, explain the text, and come back and do it again, uh, where I got that from, it was a great homiletical insight I got from a shampoo bottle. Uh, because, as you know, uh, there in the shampoo bottle it says, lather, rinse, repeat. And uh, that's the essence of simplicity, that, that, that's what you do. This is how you do this. Now, if you need instructions actually on the bottle, we probably have a problem. And nonetheless, in, in order to sell their product, they said, lather, rinse, repeat. Of course, they didn't say stop, so there's probably somebody who's, you know, a literalist who's still in there. And he's just repeating over and over and over and didn't say go home and uh, get out of the shower. 
And, and, and so I did, I did say that to the preachers. I said, look, here's the deal. It's the essence of simplicity. Our calling is actually very easy to understand. It is to read the Word of God, to explain the Word of God, and then to go home and come back and do it again. It takes a lot of confusion to mess up a calling that is that clear. I didn't say that simple. It is that clear. And to do that, and to do that faithfully, will require everything a man is and everything a man has for the entirety of a man's life. And it won't be done at the end, and that's why we have to entrust it all to Jesus. But we are called to do this, and so we do it. And, you know, I, I was asked this morning, several people say, how are you doing this morning? Well, it's always an interesting question. First of all, it makes me worry, do I look like I'm not doing well? I'm not sure. But you know what? I never, ever, not even once, have felt ill standing in the pulpit. Never once. I felt ill before. I felt ill after. Never in the pulpit. Why is that? I don't know. I just got to tell you, if you're a preacher and you're alive, more alive anywhere other than here, you must have missed your calling. Because this is where it matters most. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. As you're turning, I want to take the point of personal privilege just to state my appreciation for Justin and the folks here at, uh, at Highland Park and all of you. You have uh, lavished us with your love and hospitality. And I want you to know it has been a, a tremendous thing to be here, to... Uh, to Meet folks like Matt Pearson and others who just uh, have been so kind to, to take care of, of me and the other speakers are being taken care of just as well. And uh, as I told someone this morning, I've, I've learned new vocabulary since coming to be with you. Uh, kolachi, that's a new word to me. I didn't know what that was. It's now a good word to me. I like that. Uh, I had a secretary yesterday who asked me, would you like one? Well, that's what, I didn't know what one was. Actually, I'd had one before. I just didn't know its name. And uh, now that I had the name and the thing together, that, that's fantastic. I'll have another. Thank you. And that's just a, another indication of how, how much care and, uh, and, and just uh, Christian love and fellowship has been expressed while I've been here. But we're here for the preaching of God's Word. And I want us to look at John chapter 6. We've talked about First of all, the big frame of how we are to understand the Christian life and Christian truth and the gospel from Romans 1. And then we looked at the responsibility to defend marriage and the family, not because they stand alone just as entities in themselves. It, they would be worth defending sociologically, but we defend them biblically and theologically because we know that God's glory is displayed in them and human flourishing is to be found in them. We talked about defending life, now we're going to talk about defending the gospel. And, and it is last because it is most important. We are concluding on the responsibility to defend the gospel. And the text to which we will give our attention this morning is long, and it needs to be long. And there is in it a great deal, as we shall see, that must not be missed. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 
Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. 
Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and now we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the, this is the Word of God. This is God's Word not only for us this morning, but this is God's Word for His church in all places, as every text of Scripture is for God's people in all times. But our hearts and minds are drawn to particular texts when we face particular questions. And when we note patterns and see realities that demand an explanation, this text is saturated with explanation. And of course, it's one of the great revelatory passages concerning none other than Jesus the Christ. It begins on the next day. That raises the chronological question, what happened the day before? What happened the day before is the miracle, John's word for miracle is sign, which was the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and a believer in the authority of Scripture and a believer in the inerrancy and infallibility and veracity and truthfulness of God's Word, then you look to that passage and you see one of the most marvelous displays of the sovereign power of God as revealed in the second person of the Trinity who was able to take those tiny loaves and fishes and multiply them such that untold thousands of people, 5,000 men plus unnumbered women and children, received everything and were filled to overflowing such that there were 12 baskets of food left over. If you are a liberal, you look to that passage and you see a problem because according to your worldview, such things simply do not happen. So every once in a while, I venture into the wild not Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, that would be safer. No, I go into the wild of liberal biblical scholarship, and I, I pull down some commentaries written by liberal scholars and see how in the world are they going to deal with this? Well, they deal with it if they can by saying it, it shouldn't be in there. That's an easy way to get, deal with it. Uh, or they'll deal with it this way, and this is one of the most uh, ingenious ways of denying Scripture I've seen lately. They say, well, you know, what this is is a, uh, is a story that demonstrates Jesus' amazing power to melt the human heart. Because what actually happened was that there were all these people who were there, and they got hungry, and some of them had some food, but they were not sharing with others. And Jesus did this work through His teaching that shamed them into sharing their food so that everyone was fed. 
That would be an interesting story. That sounds like it ought to belong somewhere in the Apocrypha or something like that, the pseudepigraphic false gospels. But the actual Word of God tells us that what happened was the multiplication of one little child's meal into a massive banquet, which is, as we know in biblical theology, a sign not only of salvation, but it is an eschatological signal of that which is to come. You need to draw a direct line from the feeding of the 5,000 to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where what happened on that one day there in that Galilean hillside is going to be what we will know for eternity. We will be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb, eating the, mess- the messianic banquet, sharing in, in the, the task of the blessed ones of God, the Mene Elohim, of, of praising the triune God forever. And we will be feasting, not just for a day, but feasting for eternity on all that God will give us at His table. But there were those who were there, and they saw the miracle. They understood exactly what happened. There were no skeptics on that day when it came to what happened in terms of the miracle. They were hungry, and then they were fed. But on the next day, we meet some from the ultimate what-have-you-done-for-me-lately society. And they are determined to find Jesus. And when they notice the, the movement of the boats and they, and they track, they've been watching very carefully where Jesus is, what Jesus is doing. They notice He's now on the other side. And so they go to Him. And when they found Him on the other side of the sea, they acted like they just happened to run into Him. Rabbi! When did you come here? Jesus has an infallible and inerrant, sovereign, and perfectly omniscient nonsense detector. And so, even as they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Fancy meeting you here. Jesus turns to them, knowing their hearts, and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I have your number. I know why you're here. Let's be honest. All right? At that point, by the way, I would have retreated into some safer place if I had been embarrassed in that way. But they don't. Jesus, though, continues. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes. Yesterday was about bread. Don't, don't, don't come to me anymore about bread. Yesterday was about the, the bread that perishes the food that perishes, do not labor for it, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Jesus says to them, look, yesterday was about bread, but you're already hungry again. What does that tell you? It tells you there's a hunger in you that goes far beyond bread. If you came all the way, all the way around the Sea of Galilee, all the way around this great lake, just to find me and act like you just happened upon me, I know why you're here. I've got your number. You're hungry. And, and there's nothing wrong with being hungry except for the fact you're hungry for the wrong thing. You're looking for bread. And notice what Jesus says. He will reveal Himself as the bread of life. But before he does, they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That is one of the most dangerous questions found in Scripture. Just highlight that. That is a deadly question. What must we do to work the works of God? That, that is a question that sets up infinite theological disaster and ministerial disaster because this is what we do not do. We do not work the works of God. We don't. 
And, and by the way, Jesus makes that very clear. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe. This is, the, this is a, a, another condemnation of works righteousness. There isn't such a thing. We, we, don't, we don't get to do this. There, as the Apostle Paul will make very clear, the more you try to work your way into righteousness, the more the unrighteousness of your works becomes apparent. Jesus speaks to them very directly. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you, or what work do you perform? I said this is the ultimate, what have you done for me lately, society? You would think that having witnessed the the feeding of the 5,000, this this incredible sign, to use John's word, this miracle, to use the more common word, you, you, you look at that and you say, how could anyone who was there yesterday dare come to Jesus today and demand a sign? They are demanding attestation. They're demanding proof. And, and you know, Jesus provides throughout his earthly ministry, continually provides proof after proof after proof. And those who will not believe do not believe. People do not not believe because of a lack of proof. They do not believe because, as Jesus said, Seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear, nor will they understand. That's manifested in what we see right here. And these, and these who went all the way around the lake in order to find Jesus, when they have found him, it isn't what they want. And by the way, they demand a sign, and then they have the audacity to suggest a sign. Oh, by the way, what sign do you do? What miracle do you perform that we might believe in you? And then they say, oh, by the way, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Bread? Hint? And you notice what Jesus says. First of all, Jesus corrects them. Moses didn't give you the bread, but my Father gives you the bread from heaven. And here's where he intensifies his message. Notice that Jesus does not follow what might be called a seeker-sensitive ministry methodology. Jesus is amazingly insensitive to seekers mostly because they're seeking someone else. If they were seeking him, they would find him. But they are seeking something else. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread from heaven. Notice the present tense, gives you, not gave you, gives you. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, sir, give us this bread always. But they don't mean it because they haven't understood it. But they're about to understand it. In verse 35, as you know, one of the series of I am ego imi statements from the Gospel of John in which Jesus declares himself according to the formula by which God revealed himself to Moses. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You come to me, and what you receive from me is eternally satisfying. 
You come to me and you feed on me, you drink of me, and you will live forever. You came around this lake because you were hungry yesterday and I fed you, and you want today for me to feed you again, and then you would come back the next day for me to feed you again. I did not come to feed you daily bread. You asked the Father for your daily bread. I came to give you the bread of life so that you may not feed from me, but feed of me and receive from me nothing less than eternal salvation. I am. What a declaration. All these liberal scholars who say Jesus never claimed deity. There is no doubt that everyone who heard Jesus understood he was claiming deity. And there is no doubt that using the formula I am is Jesus himself saying, I am none other than the one who spoke from the bush that burned and was not consumed. I am the bread of life. Then notice Jesus says to them very directly, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Like I said, this isn't very secret sensitive. This, is, this doesn't follow some nice, sweet handbook of pastoral decorum. Jesus reads their hearts. This is one of the reasons, again, we, we are not Jesus. It's, we are to emulate Jesus, but, but we do not have the ability that Jesus had we, we have to speak to people not knowing what's going on in their hearts. Jesus knew. We have to proclaim the gospel not being able to read the human heart. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. We, well, we understand what's going on in this text when Jesus says, I told you, you've seen me and do not believe. There are two verses embedded in John chapter 6 that should serve as bookends of our understanding of the entire program of salvation. The, the, the gospel itself and the operation of the gospel comes down to understanding the gospel in terms of two necessary affirmations, both of which are necessary for us to hang our theology upon. They're verses 37 and, verses, and verse 44. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That is one of the most precious verses in Scripture. It tells us that Jesus' work of atonement will be fully, comprehensively, infinitely, perfectly completed. It's not a tentative plan. It's not an atonement concept. It is an accomplished, finished atonement, and it is so finished that Jesus is able to say, even before his death, burial, and resurrection, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now, that's where we hang our hopes right there. It is because all that the Father gives him will come to him. And then notice that next, he will by no means cast them out. We are secure in Christ. We are, we are assured of our salvation in Christ. Christ did not come to accomplish for us a hypothetical, tentative, potential, possible salvation, but the actual forgiveness of our sins, the actual imputed righteousness that comes to us by faith, the completed promise. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he is absolutely confident that he who began a good work in him is able to complete it on that day. 
If you don't believe that, you can't preach the gospel. If you don't believe that, you can't get out of bed in the morning. If you don't believe that, you can't possibly understand the gospel. The gospel is the sweet word of the absolute promise that all that the Father gives the Son will come to Him, and the one who comes to Him will by no means be cast out. Then look at verse 44. It is the parallel verse that is equally necessary for our understanding of the operation of the gospel. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You could put those two verses together as if they were just a little gospel. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This second point is more difficult to, for us to understand than the first. And, and, and we are in good company there because evidently the disciples, the twelve, also had a harder time understanding verse 44 than verse 37. That's why later in the very passage we read, Jesus, in some sense of exasperation, will turn to the disciples and say, that's why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. There's no such thing as being a little bit sovereign. There is no such concept as, uh, as being mostly, generally, more often than not, sovereign. If you're sovereign, you're sovereign, which is why it is a lie to talk about the sovereign state of Nebraska. You're not sovereign. Just try to leave. Or, honestly, it's not, it's not the truth to talk about the sovereign United States of America. Obviously, our will is not perfectly accomplished in the world. And for crying out loud, why in the world did the British call this elderly lady with a big collection of hats and purses their sovereign? I mean, what is she? she can't, she's not even sovereign over her own children and grandchildren, much less over the entire nation. I mean, she's, she's, it's just a lie. You know, there's our sovereign. Well, we're going to have to redefine that word. My heavens. Human, earthly pretensions to sovereignty in the, at the end of the day look foolish. We're, we're not sovereign. We have to go to sleep. Sovereigns don't have to eat. Sovereigns, sovereigns don't get tired. Sovereigns don't have to wonder if their will is going to be effective. It's effective because they're sovereign. They're sovereign because it's effective. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's the pattern of salvation. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out, and no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Every one of us is here because salvation is all of grace, and we were drawn. Everyone who comes to Christ is one who was drawn to him, literally one who was drawn by the Father to the Son, and the one who was drawn by the Father to the Son will be raised up on the last day. 
Between this, Jesus intensifies his teaching between verse 37 and 44. Jesus says in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. This is something that's just crucially important to us. It's not only true of what Jesus said of himself, it's true of what the disciples came to understand in their work, and it's true for every pastor. You must hang your entire ministry and your confidence in Christ on this very passage. God will accomplish His purposes. If you're faithful in ministry, your ministry will be completely and totally effective. And that's the problem. We want to measure it according to earthly standards, our own standards, our own criteria, and we want the evidence right before our eyes. It isn't given to us. That's God's sovereign knowledge. But He accomplishes His entire work. It's not going to be left undone. Jesus says, I'll lose nothing of all that He gave me. How is it? I just wonder, if you're a preacher of the Word of God, or if you, because you're in this room, are a, are a Christian, and you know our task is, is a, an unbelievably huge, immense, unspeakably important task to teach and preach the gospel, to take the gospel to the nations. And, uh, and yet, every once in a while, we've got to stop to eat. And pretty regularly, we've got to stop to sleep. And from what I can tell, from every once in a while, people around here go to a football game or watch it. And, uh, and you've got kids who are going to be in a little league game, and you're gonna, or grandkids, and you're going to watch them. And, uh, and, and there are high school students in here who are taking algebra and wondering why. And uh, there are people doing all kinds of things right now in the name of Christ, and they're going to stop and eat lunch and talk on the phone. How do we do that? Well, we do because God Himself says, I'm not going to lose anything. He, to His glory, uses frail and fragile human beings. He made us to have to eat. He made us to have to sleep. He made us so that bugs can lay us low. He, he made us knowing that we cannot do this in and of ourselves. And if we look ourselves in the mirror, we know we can't do this. We are called to be faithful, but we are not called to be sovereign. We're called to be faithful, but we're not, we're not, we're not called to uh, never need bread and, and never need sleep. Our confidence is that God finishes what He starts. Nothing's going to be left behind. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What an incredible promise. So that's why the next verse is reflecting so much human obscenity. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. The the problem is that the Messiah that folks were looking for wasn't the Messiah that they needed. And, and when Jesus came, and, and when He performed a miracle like the feeding of the 5,000, 
what many people saw was a sign that indeed this might be the messianic age that is dawning upon us such that he will now be the agent of a military overthrow of Rome, of the political liberation of Israel, and the establishment of Israel's national glory. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That is not why I'm here. Those things are different. God will not fail to accomplish everything he's promised, but he's promised much more than those in me. But they grumbled. And, and they grumbled, we are told by John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, precisely because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them. Notice how Jesus intensifies. Every time someone questions Jesus' teaching, he intensifies it. Not once does he say, okay, that was a little too much. You know, I, I need to be careful about the way I sometimes just lay it all out there. No. He says, you idiots, listen carefully. <laughs> Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day, as it is written in the prophets. And all, they all will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. I am, I say to you, I have seen the Father, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Circular in his reasoning. Repetitive in his pattern. Jesus comes back and uses the same words and phrases over and over and over again. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And where are they? I didn't come to get you through the wilderness in order for you to die short of the land of promise. I have come not to give you bread, but as the bread of life. Not to feed on it, but to feed on me. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, here's where it intensifies hugely. It's my flesh. Substitutionary atonement's right here. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is right here. His body broken for us is right here. This is my body broken for you is right here. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate the manna and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Wow. Salvation now in a picture for us. Atonement, substitutionary atonement. Here, unquestionably displayed in Jesus speaking of himself as the bread of life, 
and inviting sinners to feed on him. And, and speaking of the bread of life, as my flesh, it is, a, it is a bodily incarnation. It will be a bodily crucifixion. It will be a bodily resurrection. And if Christ is not in a body as we are in a body, and if he were not at this point prior to his to his resurrection, making this claim in a way that was so recognizable, we would not be saved. We could not feed on him. Just as on that night, he took the two elements and he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he spoke of the cup. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. It's not very sophisticated. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it's downright grotesque by human estimations. I mean, after all, <laughs> lots of people driving by. What are they talking about in there? Eating flesh and drinking blood. If that doesn't strike you as incongruous, you don't understand it. If that doesn't make you the slightest bit awkward, well, just think about the fact you're sitting on an airplane next to a lost person. And they say, what is it you actually believe? I believe we're to eat Christ's flesh and drink His blood. <laughs> Stewardess, is there another seat? Uh, and I just, no. That's true. That's true. And it, it, it scandalizes us. If we're honest, it's tough stuff. I mean, this isn't something that that, that you can just say and walk away from it as if you just haven't exploded a bomb in the room. Jesus exploded a bomb every time he preached. People tend to take the, the teachings of Jesus and, and, and try to domesticate it. And here's Jesus, and this is a sweet little story. It's like the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus are not sweet little stories. They make a mess. Jesus makes a mess here. So much so that his own disciples are uncomfortable. Notice what happens as the text takes this crucial turn. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Let's be really, really honest. It would have been tough to have been there as one of the disciples of Jesus. Because this is tough stuff. Jesus is looking to those who have come around the lake to speak to him. The disciples are continually confused by how Jesus responds to people. Matthew chapter 13, there's this massive crowd, a crowd that is so big that Jesus has to get into a boat and get offshore just so we can get the distance a teacher has to have in order to teach. He's out there in the boat. He's got the massive crowd. Crowds are not natural in Galilee. Galilee's a very sparsely populated agrarian area. People have been... They've been pouring out of homes and hamlets and villages. They're all there. This is the great crowd. This is the crusade. The disciples are ready to, to rent the Colosseum. They're, they're ready to organize the buses. They're ready to hire the media relations firm. And, and what does Jesus do? They want Jesus to get up and say, I hereby declare myself Messiah, Lord, and King. What does he do? He says, I appreciate you all coming today. Um, farmer went out to sow one day. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the roadway, and 
Never bore any fruit, never happened, never even sprouted. Birds came and took it away. Some of it fell in rocky soil, showed signs of life, but when the sun came out, it withered and died. Some fell in thorny soil and never bore any fruit. Some fell in the good soil and uh, yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. You can go home now. Imagine Billy Graham holding the Great Crusade, having married everybody there in Yankee Stadium and saying, I'm going to tell you a little story. Bye. This is what Jesus did. And the disciples, what, did, what happens in Matthew 13? The disciples ask him, saying, uh, why do you speak to them in parables? <laughs> what are you doing? We, we, this was a crowd, Jesus. That's what it looks like. This was the tailor-made opportunity for a messianic declaration. It didn't happen. And now the disciples are grumbling. Now, we have to be very careful, especially in the Gospel of John at this point. Because when John here talks about the disciples, we immediately think of the twelve. The twelve are here, but this is not about the twelve, not yet. This is about that larger group of disciples that followed Jesus. We know that throughout his ministry, a larger group of people began to attach themselves to it the way that, that people, especially young men, attach themselves to rabbis. And, and as teachers, they wanted to be taught. They wanted to come under the tutelage. They wanted to come under the teaching. And so there was this larger group. And by the time Jesus had reached this point in John chapter 6, in the Gospel of John, he has an entourage of, of an untold number, but a fairly significant and sizable number of disciples who are following him, listening to him. They want to be in the inside circle. They want to be around him. But right now it's gotten to be very uncomfortable, and they begin to grumble amongst themselves. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Why did he, why did he, why did he have to say that? There would be less offensive ways of presenting the truth. There has to be a better way, a less offensive way, a way that doesn't entail all the kinds of misunderstandings and and grotesque physicalities and all this kind of stuff. Jesus, we're going to work with you on some messaging. We're going to work on how to talk about your ministry in a way that will not make people so mad, including, by the way, ourselves. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, notice that Jesus treats his disciples as they are known here in the same way he, he treated the Jews who grumbled against him. He intensifies. Do you take offense at this? Oh, I am telling you, I, I, I don't know. What, how, how could you have stood there when Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are, 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 are you offended by this? Oh, my goodness. Then Jesus intensifies it further. What then if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You haven't seen anything yet. There, we're on the, the near side of cross and resurrection and ascension. If you're having trouble right here, John, we couldn't put it this way, but we can put it this way. If you're having trouble in John chapter 6, there's a whole lot of John to come. It's not going to get easier. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh is of no avail. Very important principle. This is where the flesh and spirit in their juxtaposition in the Gospel of John become clear to us. Salvation is entirely of the Spirit. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where it wills. 
Flesh avails nothing. What must we do to work the works of God? You can't work the works of God. The only work of God is that you believe in the one whom he has sent. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then look at verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We so desperately need to hear that. The twelve desperately needed to hear that. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the year 2012 desperately needs to hear this. All that the Father gives him will come to him. And no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And he will raise him up at that day. It's all of grace. God is sovereign at every single point in salvation. And he accomplishes his purposes. Nothing is left out. Nothing is left behind. Nothing is left unfinished. We can kind of picture what it was like when Jesus was speaking these words, and you can kind of understand how this larger group of disciples was downright uncomfortable. I mean, do you have to put it this way? Do you have to, do you, do you have to say everything all at once? I had an opportunity to talk to a major reporter yesterday, a story that will be out next Monday. I'll just, uh, uh, I, it's, it's an embargoed story, but I will tell you, it's going to be a pretty significant story of interest to churches uh, in USA Today uh, next Monday. But uh, in reality, it deals with very much the same situation. There's no such thing as believing a little bit in Jesus. There's, there's no such thing as having a little bit of attachment to Christianity. The New Testament only knows in and out. Now, the problem is that we can't see, but Jesus sees, the, the Father sees. We are told here that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe in him and even who would betray him. Again, nothing's, nothing's left undone. Nothing's left unfinished. Nothing's left behind. There is no ministry failure. There are no losses in Jesus' ministry. All the Father gives him will come to him. And no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I landed in Omaha Friday and with my family, and we were making our way over here Saturday, and I picked up the Omaha World Herald. And I always, I'm a newspaper person, I deal with news, I uh, work with worldview analysis, I am dependent upon national and international news sources, but I love local news sources. And boy, this is local. In Saturday's edition of the Omaha World Herald, I met someone known as the Reverend Susan Ellis, pastor of Omaha Northside Christian Church. Turns out that uh, the Omaha newspaper has a little section in Saturday's paper called From the Pulpit. Rather disastrous section, I must point out. Uh, not from this pulpit, unfortunately, from some other pulpit. What would Reverend Susan have to say? Well, Reverend Susan is quite concerned about the reputation of the church. She's very concerned about the fact that so many Christians seem to feel it necessary to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. She says, what would happen if we believed that there is no right or wrong way to connect with God, just different? 
What would happen if we listened to the words of Confucius who said, in the world there are many different roads, but the destination is the same. Boom. Um, there are a hundred deliberations, but the result is one. What if we believe the writings of Islam which state, there are as many ways to God as souls, as many breaths of Adam's sons and daughters. By the way, she has to put in and daughters because I promise you the Quran does not have and daughters any more than the New Testament has Reverend Susan. Um, she then asked the question, would it be blasphemous to incorporate the Hindu belief which states, they who worship other gods with faith, they adore but me behind those forms. Many are the paths of man, but they're all in the end come to me. Maybe we could just agree with the Pawnee Native American belief which states all religions are but stepping stones back to God. When we examine the multitude of religions on this planet earth, there are many similarities such as the practice of justice, peace, love, meditation, prayer, caring for one another, praise of a higher power, self-worth. Um, striving for a better life or afterlife, and these religions include the need for community. What part of our faith and relationship to God would be diminished by allowing for there to be multiple paths to God? We who choose to believe the teaching of Jesus know how He surrounded Himself with those who were different, those who were excluded, those who were viewed as wrong or less than. Jesus welcomed the stranger, stood with the oppressed, and ate with the undesirables. Jesus taught us relationship, love, acceptance, and community. Jesus taught us inclusion, not exclusion. <laughs> She ends by saying, what if we lived our faith in the same way? Not right, not wrong, just different. Oh, it's John or Reverend Susan. There's your choice. You understand what's going on here? I understand why she wrote this. I understand why the Omaha World Herald published it. I understand why a lot of people read it and said, oh, isn't she right? Um... What if we don't have to worry about right and wrong, just different? Make it a lot easier to live with our neighbors. It'd, it'd make it a lot, our public relations would improve immensely. Uh, no one would dislike us for believing things they find odious, strange, and threatening. And, of course, the new word that's almost universally used is intolerant. There are few statements we could come up with in our own imagination that would be more intolerant than what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Jesus is not about toleration. He's about atonement. He's not about public relations. He's about salvation. And we can certainly understand what's going on here. We can understand what goes on with the disciples because if we are honest as preachers, we will know there are some texts we would in, the own, in our own flesh, in our, in our own strategic ministry planning, we would never preach. It's one of the reasons why, dear brothers, we must be committed to verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the Scripture so that you do not leave out what God put in. And as I guarantee you, if we're preaching highlights through Leviticus, that's going to be a short series. You know, and, and have you ever noticed how many people end their exposition of the, of, the, of the book of Romans at the end of chapter 8? You go hop, skipping, and jumping through the book of Hebrews? 
No, it's, it's all here, and every word of it is God's Word, and we need every word of it, and we need all of it, and we need, we need the offensive parts because they're the parts we don't know and do not want to believe. They're precisely what makes the difference between heaven and hell. Several years ago, in fact, it was almost, well, a generation ago, James Davison Hunter did this massive study of younger evangelicals and came to the conclusion that the truth claim of Christianity that was most difficult for younger evangelicals, and this would be back in the, in the 80s, for them to accept was the exclusivity of the gospel. The very thing that Reverend Susan here is saying we just can't afford to believe anymore. And, and we're a generation later. It hasn't gotten easier. I, uh, I, I, I've never... I've never been in a boxing ring, which, by the way, is square, which confuses me. Uh, I've, never, I've never been there. But, but I, did, I did go on the Phil Donahue show, and, uh, and, and, and more than once, as a matter of fact. And uh, I got a call from Phil's producer one day, and he, he said, can you fly up to New York? And it was just before Christmas, and he said, can you fly up to New York? We have a program we need to put together immediately because of something going on in the news. And uh, they said, uh, it, it's, it's, it's about whether or not Jesus is the only Savior. Well, I didn't need to know anymore. I said, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll book the flight. I'll be there. And I walked in the studio, and uh, uh, there, there's, there I was with the other people who are going to be on the show with me. And, and uh, oh, one of the people that I was on the, the Phil Donahue show with uh, is someone that I had been on other television shows with opposed to. His, his, it's a rabbi. His name is Shmuley Boteok. And, uh, and he's a showman. Um, we, had a, we had a very interesting uh, conversation before we went on the air. He, he's very gracious. You know, how are your kids? What's going on? How are you doing? How are you doing? You're looking healthy. Yeah. On a diet? Then we get on camera. How in the world can you believe that most people are going to hell? How in the world can you tell me that I as a Jew must come to believe in Jesus Christ or I am lost? You are intolerant. You're an apostle of hatred. Then the commercial comes on. Hey, you going to be hungry after this? I'm going to... I have... This is crazy. But... And, and he, I don't he doesn't have a show anymore, but I, I knew this was coming. At, at some crucial point... Phil Donahue does what Phil Donahue, if you guys know what I'm talking about, you, you remember Phil, the Apostle Phil, you know exactly how he, he, he would always look at the person he disagreed with and he would go, do you really believe that? Phil, I really believe that, but I'm not smart enough to come up with this. And, and, and furthermore, Inside, I'm thinking, I'm not even sure I'm up to this, but I've got to do this. And I just said, look, here is the gospel. Here is who Jesus is and why Jesus came. This is what Jesus said. Not the Jesus of your imagination. Not the, not the Jesus that, that you want to make in your own image. Not the Jesus that these disciples would have gotten some messaging help. But this is what Jesus actually said. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him to me, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is what Jesus had to say 
I'm the bread of life. You eat my flesh, you live forever. You drink my blood, you never thirst again. If you will not eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. If, if you think that's going to go over well on MSNBC, you know better. It's not even going to go over well when you're talking to your neighbor. But it is the word of life. And if they believe, they will be saved. And, and you know what? Here's the amazing thing. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them to me. Okay, that's put in the negative, but just imagine what the positive is in that. The Father draws people to Jesus. That's how we got here. We're not here because we were intellectually superior. We're not here because we were morally superior. We're just here because the Father drew us. And having drawn us, we believed. And having been drawn, we feed on Him. And we come together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of the, of the redeemed, the blood-bought church, and, and we share those two elements, the body broken for us, His body, and we eat it. His blood, and we drink it. And it is just a symbol because it has to be just a symbol because the real body was broken for us one time and the real blood was shed for us one time and it purchased our salvation for all time and for eternity. I ended where the text doesn't end. I ended where Jesus says, John tells us, after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, we need to continue in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Oh, my goodness. It's like in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus, when he took his disciples into the region of Caesarea Philippi, asked them, who do they say that I am? And then he turns to them and says, okay, who do you say that I am. Now Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, you going away too? Oh my goodness. I'm right now, all over again, thankful I'm not standing there. How did they stand it? And what are they going to say? Well, here's Peter. This is, this is the rock. This is that Peter. This is not the Peter that Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, Peter. This is Peter, as the New Testament helps us to understand, such a frail and fragile human being, but so massively filled with conviction. This farmer, excuse me, fisherman, this, uh, this fisherman who is so gloriously redeemed is just the one who's going to speak first. Do you also want to go away? And Peter says, Lord... This is the most humble confession of Christ, I promise you, found anywhere in the New Testament. Yes, Lord, where we go? Have you ever realized that that's in the New Testament? It's there. Not only is it there, it's gloriously there. It's there as a statement of Peter's awesome, God-given, earth-shaking faith. Sometimes what it means to be faithful to Christ is to recognize we got nowhere else to go. This is it. And we've come to know, Peter says, and to believe that you are the Holy One of God. We're not going anywhere. First of all, because there's nowhere else to go. 
Secondly, because we've come to know who you are. You're the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the one who's going to sit on David's throne. But as he says in Matthew chapter 16, you're even more than that. You're the son of the living God. We've got nowhere else to go, so we're going to feed on you. We've got nowhere else to go, so we're going to drink your blood. We've got nowhere else to go, so we're sticking with you, Jesus. This is where the church is in every generation. We're in the same position. The question that Jesus asked the twelve is the question He asks His church in every season, every generation. It's the question that comes to every preacher, and in one sense, it's a question that comes to every Christian. Do you also want to go away? Our task is to defend the gospel, not because it is simply a truth claim worthy of our defense, but because it is the very word of life, without which there is no salvation. It is the promise, the sure and certain promise, that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And without those words, without this message, without this truth, there is no hope in this world nor in the world to come. Sometimes, dear preacher brother, when you get up in the pulpit, you know what it feels like. It is your greatest privilege to preach a text, and you just can't wait to get there. Sometimes you find yourself in a situation in which it's awkward, daunting. The, the temptation is to try to remessage it. The formula that comes to the mind is, yes, I know that's what the text says, but let me tell you what it means. That is disaster. It means what it says, and it says what it meant. Liberal theology comes in not in an effort, they who proponent, are proponents of it, in order to say, let's destroy the faith, but they say, let's save the faith. Let's save it from itself. Let's save Christianity from its bad reputation of its exclusivity and blood and, 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 and sacrificial atonement. Let's, let's save Christianity from all that theological baggage. Let's just, let's just say it really doesn't matter if you're right or wrong, just different. That's what you call walking away. But the true church is found where the gospel is proclaimed and the word is preached. And then we just let it do its work. And the true church is found where the servants and followers of Christ hear Christ continually ask his church, Do you also want to go away? And the true church is found not where the church always says, We're offended by the question, Jesus. Why would you ask us that, Jesus? No, the true church is found when we just say humbly, Lord, we've got nowhere else to go. We've come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. And Father, we are so thankful for your word. For we would have no source or access to any of this knowledge, this saving knowledge, if you had not loved us so much that you gave us your word. And Father, beyond that, we thank you for the Savior by whose blood we are saved. And Father, we pray that you will, you will glorify yourself in a church that knows that every moment it's got nowhere else to go and stands firm in the faith once for all delivered to the saints and does so to your glory until we die or Jesus comes. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.